Welcome back to part three of this toxicity series on skin toxicities. Uh, in the first uh, podcast, we covered some sort of general overview about the prevalence of these toxicities, some of the symptoms that you would ask. We covered uh, the role for biopsy and, and grading system. And then we, I quite unfairly put Anna on the spot and asked her to reel off lots and lots of different ways of, of managing these with lots of different things. And then in the second podcast, we covered some of the uh, you know, more minor or moderate toxicities, and we walk through a few of those. And in this final podcast, we're going to pick up what I think are the skin toxicities that scare people a little bit more. Um, and in particular, and I can certainly hold my hand in the air and say the first couple of cases of bullous pemphigoid and Stephen Johnson's I was involved in, I felt a little bit out of my depth. So, Anna, let's start with bullous pemphigoid. In my experience, this occurs in about 1% of patients um, receiving immunotherapy. It tends to be more common with PD-1 or PD-L1 or combination, maybe less so with CTLA-4, but be keen on your thoughts on that. And then the presentation here is often with those sort of tense bullae, you know, that you can get a little bit of sort of pink and slightly itchy plaques and and you can get mucose involvement and, and clearly that's something we see in Stephen Johnson's as well that we'll get to. And something that I had with one patient is that they presented with actually a prodromal kind of itch that, that didn't really have anything and then that turned into bullous pemphigoid. So keen for your thoughts around presentation and then maybe let's get into you know how you would diagnose it? Is there a role for biopsy? Is this clearly just you can pick it up from seeing it? Um, and then let's think about management. Um, so, uh, yeah, in terms of does it happen with CTLO4 inhibitors? I think it's just it's not a very common thing generally. So it's just probably a feature of the fact that we don't give that much single agent IPI, um, if I'm honest. Um, it's probably the reason we don't see it as much. Um, but certainly that said, the patients I've seen it in have um, either been on combination or PD-1 inhibitors. Um, so it's it's an interesting uh, toxicity. It tends to evolve quite rapidly over a series of hours into days and people um, present sometimes with a prodrome um, itch and then they start developing blisters and the blisters are um, tense uh, tense blisters often very increasing in size and you can sort of nearly see them sort of progress in front of your eyes um, they can get they, they can get them all over their body but um, particularly affecting their their feet and uh, in particular um, which makes mobility and um, and sort of just general sort of uh, sort of well-being being very significantly affected um, and what happens is that they they then they're not particularly uh, robust in terms of the skin so they they then uh, de-roof and, and, and burst and so you then get quite a lot of sort of open areas of skin and then more blisters so they're quite they're quite it's quite a, a, a distressing and worrying um, presentation um, and they are quite challenging to to treat but if we talk about sort of diagnosis the the gold standard is to do a, um, a biopsy and particularly of the of the edge of the blister so not in the middle of the blister or next to the blister but on the edge of the blister and the reason for that that in normal sort of uh, sort of 
de novo bolus in, in the absence of checkpoint inhibitors, they are um, they get uh, immunoglobulin deposition around the around the base of the blisters. And so if you um, do something called immunofluorescence, you do the biopsy and do immunofluorescence, um, you can actually identify this I, IgG deposition. Uh, and that suggests that there's autoantibody activity and that it's diagnostic of bullous pemphigoid. So that's what we do. Um, interestingly, um, quite a lot of our patients don't get that um, deposition. So if you take a biopsy of the of the skin, um, generally you can see findings in keeping with bullous pemphigoid, but very rarely do you see the IgG deposition. And that's probably because it is not um, a B-cell um, immunoglobulin-driven disease in this patient population. But it is still important to send it because um, it tells us whether this is is IgG driven or not, and that can impact on the treatment that we give. So it's really important to do that. And it's one of the areas where if you don't biopsy yourself, and obviously very few people will do, that it's really important to get the dermatology teams involved because it, it really helps with the diagnostics, but you have to do the biopsy of the right bit, otherwise you don't get the right answer. Okay. And then Anna, sometimes I hear um, pemphigus and pemphigoid um, and sometimes there's a sort of differential um, in fact I've, I've seen on the differential sometimes clinically like a lichen planus pemphigoides I, I don't really do, do I need to know the difference between pemphigus pemphigoid and that or, or or is that really just sort of dermatology level stuff? You don't necessarily need to know the the, the, the difference the, the the main difference is that the the Pemphigus is a shallow, shallower disorder. It's not as potentially um, problematic. It's not potentially as um, as sort of morbidity or mortality inducing. Um, so it's it's important to know if you've got big blisters that are rupturing, causing lots of problems. The rest of them are varying different descriptions of 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 different vesicles essentially so it's 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 useful because you're then having a conversation with the dermatologist about how best to treat them but I think the main difference is have they got big blisters that are very fluid filled or have you got little shallow ulcers that are, are sort of that are giving a fairly, relatively non non-deep non-distressing um picture so I wouldn't worry too much about the specifics I think if you've got a question send them to see your dermatology colleagues rather than trying to diagnose it yourself you just need to know whether you need to do something and how quickly you need to do it. Okay, great. Well, that brings us on beautifully, Anna, to management. So um, is there a role for steroids here? Because um, we've obviously talked earlier about some of the more minor rashes, you know, not being particularly oral steroid responsive. Um, and then for the refractory cases, again, I've seen a little bit of data for rituximab, and I know that you've used rituximab for other toxicities. Um, and again, I guess that would fit with the IgG story that you gave in the biopsy. So maybe walk me through your kind of approach to management. Okay. So um, in de novo cases, they actually use um, uh, certain um, anti-inflammatory antibiotics like doxycycline in the first line as, as a treatment for bullous pemphigoid. Um, and certainly in non-checkpoint inhibitor-induced uh, situations, it works quite nicely for mild cases. Um, we have done that um, in our patient population, and I've never seen a benefit, or at least not enough of a benefit to prevent any further treatment. So it's not to say don't do it. Obviously, they're at risk of, of added infection, so it's not a bad thing to do. Um, I suspect your dermatology colleagues may suggest it. Again, that's not a bad thing to do. But have I seen moderate to severe cases responding and not requiring another treatment? 
no. I, I, th- these actually patients are often quite challenging to treat. It's quite difficult to get them to respond, actually. Um, so we do tend to move on to steroids. You can use oral or um, or IV steroids. And most patients, given the severity, if they're a grade three, four um, toxicity, will need IV steroids. What I tend to find with patients who are on IV steroids is they do get better to some degree. But again, um, quite often if they've got a severe case, it's actually quite difficult to get them to completely respond to steroids alone. Um, so increasingly, if they've got severe um, bullous pemphigoid, I will often move to, to other drugs um, in this patient group if they're not responding within three days of IV steroids, because I think experience has taught me that in the very small number that we see, it's quite rare for them to resolve completely if they've if they've got a severe case of, of bullous pemphigoid. So that then brings you to the question of what do you use? And this is why the biopsy is so important. So because the majority of this in, in the sort of normal setting is driven by, by B cell activity, driven by immunoglobulin, um, actually then using things like rituximab is very helpful. So for those who don't know, rituximab is a, a monoclonal antibody targeted at, um, at CD20, which is found on the surface of B cells. So it's very effective at modulating B cell activity. So if you've got a patient who's had a biopsy that shows findings in human bullous pemphigoid and they've had a biopsy for immunofluorescence, which has shown that they have got IgG deposition, and actually rituximab is a very effective drug in this case. And certainly the dermatologists use it widely. And we have seen for those small numbers that do get this, IgG presence that actually it works and as you've said I've used it for other autoantibody driven toxicity and it does work really really well. That said the majority of our patients don't have that um, that deposition and that's important because it seems that these patients tend to have a T-cell driven mediator of the same manifestation which is not described in the literature because it hasn't really been identified outside of the ICI setting but that's certainly what we see Um, and we've tried a number of different you know in the early days when we were working with our dermatologists you know we didn't know if they were going to respond to things like MMF or not but actually what I use in these patients is cyclosporin and it's the one group that I use cyclosporin in and I I have without fail seen complete resolution of bullous pemphigoid from checkpoint inhibitors with cyclosporin treatment. Um, So I don't use it in many settings because I don't we don't feel find the need to quite often other drugs work very well in our toxicities but in this patient group we have tried other things but cyclosporin by far and away is the most effective and I've I've had to fly people over from the Isle of Man and have them under my care here put them on cyclosporin their bullous pemphigoid's dried up and they've been able to go home Similarly, I've had patients on high dose of steroids with little response who've then gone on cyclosporin and really, really responded and their toxicities resolved. So um, that's why I find the biopsy and understanding what the underlying driver is so important because actually it gives you very different management and processes depending on what you think the predominant mediator is. Okay, that's super useful, Anna. So I've never used cyclosporin. Um, so I'm going to need even more of an idiot's guide than normal. So if I needed to do that tomorrow, what would I need to counsel the patient about? What side effects? Do I need to do levels? Do I need to do any testing beforehand? Um, be useful to talk about cyclosporin then. Yeah, so it's a bit of an interesting drug. So it it's, it interacts with lots of things, cyclosporin, which is not necessarily ideal. Um, so uh, it, and it interacts with tacrolimus. So you have to be quite careful when you're using it in our patient group, particularly if you've got them in, on other other immunosuppression for other things. Um, 
the main thing you have to counsel the patients about is hypertension. So um, there are, uh, cyclosporins used not infrequently in, in dermatology, dermatology, so they will normally have a protocol for it. So um, if you've not used it before, I normally suggest that actually you have a conversation with your, um, uh, with your dermatology team and say, you know, this has been described in certain settings that to be useful, but we've never used it before. What do we do? Um, and it, but it works. It works really well. So um, so I would get your dermatology protocol, which will help you um, understand what to, to do. Um, normally, we start at a dose of 2.5 um, to 3 milligrams per kilogram per day. Um, and then you can go up to a maximum of 5 milligrams per kilogram per day, um, depending on the response. The main side effect is hypertension. So you need to keep a really close eye on your patient's blood pressure. It is likely that the blood pressure will go up. And in fact, it's considered to be a marker of response. Um, but you do need to monitor their, their blood pressure really closely and treat it if they become hypotensive. In terms of other monitoring, you don't need to do levels of cyclosporin normally. There are some small, there are some circumstances you can do cyclosporin levels. Okay, I'm back. Sorry, I don't know what happened. I think I, I think I've already got to talking about levels, and then then we yeah, disappeared. Yeah, levels was yeah. your last word. So pick that okay. back up, and I'll just. Is that all right? Thank yeah. you. Sorry, lovely. Um, so in terms of cyclosporine levels, we you can do cyclosporine levels, but you don't tend to need to. Um, you just tend you tend to but you do need to monitor them. So before they start treatment pretty standard for um uh, for um starting uh, other additional immunosuppression but uh, full blood count um use and ease uh, you need to do their lipid levels so their their um their cholesterol levels can climb quite quite notably um during cyclosporine treatment so it's really important to know what their baseline lipid levels are and do their blood pressure before treatment and then during treatment they need their full blood count their use and ease and their blood pressure done weekly for the first four weeks and then fortnightly for two months and then monthly thereafter as long as their bp remains stable they need to have monthly lfts and we need to do um monthly uh lipids for the first month and then they have to have them done sort of periodically between six monthly and yearly if they stay on treatment that said um again with these patients look much like every other um patient that we um that we treat with checkpoint inhibitor toxicity they don't tend to need to stay on treatment for a for a long period of time um and knowing how long is a really difficult question so some um, and and there's no there's no guidance for this so in my experience we normally keep them on cyclosporin for at least a month after everything's resolved and they've become off steroids and then we try and de-escalate the cyclosporin and normally we can do that quite effectively um so um so yeah so we do we we do that um and and then we normally be, can get them off cyclosporin so it's quite again i haven't had a patient that's needed to be on it long term for bullous pemphigoid um but but just need to kind of go by how they respond um and how and how they respond to, to withdrawal in terms of people you can't use cyclosporin in um so if they've got abnormal renal function you can't use it then uh, if they've got uncontrolled hypertension you need to control the hypertension before you think about using it um 
And obviously you can't use live vaccines while they're on it, but that's true for most of our immunosuppressants. In terms of interactions, it does interact with an awful lot of drugs. Um, so it is worth being aware of that. And you can look those up on the, on its SPC, but they do interact with, with lots of things, particularly a series of antibiotics. As I said, it also interacts with, um, with tacrolimus. Um, and also there is sort of a, a degree of interaction with steroids. So you just need to make sure you're keeping an eye on, on, on things um, from that. So they are quite difficult drug it is quite a difficult drug to use which is part of the reason that I don't tend to um to tend to use it if I if I don't need to in in other settings but for this patient group it works phenomenally so it's just a case of being aware of, of monitoring the drug quite closely um, and for us these patients sit under a, a steroid sparing clinic in terms of how it works in the community there are normally um shared care agreements for cyclosporine under the dermatologist if the dermatologist start it then the GPs will prescribe it under a shared care agreement. So just worth talking to your dermatology team about how you manage that part of the process. But then that comes with a standard guideline that the GPs and, and you guys can follow. Okay. And, and Anna, is it given IV or orally? And do you, if because this sounds like it's a fairly long process once you start cyclosporine, am I assuming that you wouldn't restart the checkpoint inhibitor until they were off the cyclosporine? Yeah, so normally orally, as long as they can take it, there is there are non-oral um, uh, administration routes, but tend to they tend to be fine with a, with an oral administration. Um, yet, I think it's one of the groups that you they they definitely normally sit under the severe skin toxicity grouping. Um, so yeah, I certainly wouldn't be thinking about restarting until I'd got it completely under control, and that normally for me would be off cyclosporine. Okay, and then you just mentioned um, live vaccines um, in in your sort of answer and, and avoiding them in immunosuppressed patients. Yeah, J just again for our audience, Anna, live vaccines. When should patients on checkpoint inhibitors or patients on steroids for checkpoint inhibitors or patients on immunosuppressive drugs beyond steroids? What's kind of the threshold for when we can or can't have live vaccines? Uh, so it's it's generally so. Checkpoint inhibitors and live vaccines, they're, they're not recommended, but there's not actually necessarily any reason not to give them. So it, it, that's very much a, a, um, a balance of risk and benefit. Um, so really worth thinking about it. So, you know, random live vaccines. So yellow fever is a live vaccine. If somebody's going to deepest, darkest Africa and they've been on a checkpoint inhibitor, it's certainly worth having a think about which is the which is the the lesser of the risk. Um, in terms of people on steroids, it depends a little bit on how long they've been on for. But if they've been on for steroids for more than four weeks and they're on additional immunosuppression in the form of an, another immunosuppressive, I wouldn't recommend live vaccines. And just for those of us who who you know aren't aware, so MMR, uh, chickenpox, yellow fever, they are all live vaccines. Things like the flu vaccine is not a live vaccine, and patients can have that throughout treatment. Okay, that's really useful. So, because again, this is a question that many people will be asked all the way through the winter. My personal approach is I'm happy for people to have COVID vaccines and flu vaccines alongside their treatment. Is that what you're doing? Um, so, yes. So it's interesting. So the, the, the guidance for this is very is very complicated. So flu vaccines used to be simple and now they're a bit more complicated um, because uh, for people over 65, there's an immune booster in the flu vaccine. And, and we don't know what effect that has for patients on checkpoint inhibitors. Um, so some areas of the country are suggesting that you just have the normal flu vaccine, irrespective of your age, without the, the immune booster. Others are saying it's it, it's fine to have, have either. There isn't any case reports that I've seen. And 
there doesn't appear to be any MHRA alerts about people having either of the flu vaccines on checkpoint inhibitors. So I think either is is absolutely fine. Um, in terms of the uh, COVID vaccine, yep. So the COVID vaccine is recommended for patients who are on any form of systemic anti-cancer therapy and or immunosuppression and that they consider an immunosuppressed individual to be on more than 20 milligrams of steroid. Um, so that is very reasonable and to be considered. My one caveat is for my patients who have had myocarditis from their immunotherapy, I actually am recommending they don't have the COVID vaccine because it has a strong association with myocarditis. So they're the one group that at the moment, I think the balance of risk is higher to make their, their myocarditis worse compared to, to COVID um, vaccination. So they're a bit of a tricky tricky group. Um, but generally speaking, I'm recommending that my patients have their COVID vaccine. Um, and the other thing that... Um, the other thing that people will often be asked about are their pneumococcal vaccine. Um, their pneumococcal vaccine is a is not a live vaccine, um, so therefore they can have their pneumococcal vaccine. Um, so that's interesting. And then the shingles vaccine is a bit of a difficult one. So it tends to be it's becoming a bit of a thing at the moment as to shingles vaccines and whether they should have it. It's it's indicated for different age groups and it keeps changing. Um, so uh, so that's a bit of a, a confusing one. And it depends. Some of them. Um, have got a live strain of varicella and some of them haven't so you need to make so that so we recommend that they have the non-live uh, vaccine if they've if they're going to have a shingles vaccine so again has to have a conversation with their gp who is normally providing their vaccine um, program about which strain they're using but there are non-live vaccines for shingles that we should be thinking about suggesting for our patients if they fall into the relevant group slight deviation i know but i think really important anna because these are the things as 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 teams that we're asked so often in clinic particularly in the winter so look let's bring this one to a close uh, let's open up the final part part four uh, thinking about dread syndrome which i think is really going to get our brains going so thanks anna and see you again next time <laughs>